the Anesthesia Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, for me, and in, in live uh, streaming from Ottawa, uh, Ontario, Canada, and good evening uh, for those people in the UK. Hi, I'm Nick Wilson. I'm an anaesthetic trainee currently working at the uh, Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. But at the start of the pandemic, I was working as an intensive care fellow. So I actually moved partway through the pandemic. So a lot of the um, the data collection was done in Sydney, but a lot of the write-up and thinking and analysis was done while I was here in Scotland. So um, across two hemispheres, essentially. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, Tony? Hi, I'm Tony Pickering. I'm a professor of neuroscience and anesthesia at the University of Bristol and uh, a competitor, I think, of Nick in the research uh, around aerosols and aerosol generating procedures. I'm here to play devil's advocate. Excellent, excellent. Um, and finally, uh, the famous and infamous uh, Dr. Tim Cook. Okay, we'll start with that. Um, yeah, I'm Tim Cook. I'm an anaesthetist uh, and intensivist in Bath in the UK. Um, if, if I were a particle, um, I would be a small um, aerosol in this paper. Uh, and I'm also a small aerosol in the aerator group in Bristol. So I um, have a small, not even a foot, but a small uh, part to play in, in, in both this study and in the, in the um, work that... Tony and colleagues in Bristol too. Okay, great. I, I'd like to add to that though, um, Tim, you have been our voice uh, for the healthcare worker um, throughout COVID uh, and your steady guidance and, and, and steady thoughtful uh, way of approaching patients with COVID and approaching this pandemic and even for healthcare wellness and validity of our concerns has been, um, uh, really um, uh, pivotal uh, and essential. So um, you you have done a tremendous amount for all of us internationally. Thank you. Um, so without further ado, I'd, I'd just like to start the ball rolling on the paper um, by asking uh, Nick, um, how did you manage to straddle um, getting basic science people involved with clinicians in order to come up with these uh, research questions that are valid and essential for us to know? How did you come up with the language together? How did you even meet one another? And how can you inspire the rest of us to do this sort of unsiloed research to come up with relevant uh, questions and, and how to answer those? So I guess I'll start with how I got involved with it. So um, I actually remember I was running on a beach and um, the pandemic was kicking off and the whole world was falling apart in Europe in particular. And I was in Australia and I remember look, looking as intensive cares filled up and felt that I really wanted to contribute positively. And I've been reading a lot about um, AGPs and aerosols and how dangerous they were and, and kind of it was an area of interest so I just decided to sort of dedicate myself to that and did a lot of reading and research around it, um, originally with the intention of making a podcast um, relevant to it, which we did make, but that sort of um, spiraled into a literature review, which is, was published in April in Anesthesia. And in the, in the final stages of, of that, I was connected to Professor Ewan Tovey, 
who sadly is not with us um, this evening because it's probably because it's 4am in Sydney at the moment, but um, he, he helped me refine um, that paper and he's been working in aerosol um, and droplet science for the last 30 years. He's studied dust and pollen and viruses and how they cause infection uh, or respiratory disease essentially, but he's also measured exhaled virus. Um, so he really helped um, sort of direct the paper. And he'd also had a little bit of experience with um, non-invasive ventilation, not quite in as much detail as a, a clinician, but um, he'd worked in a respiratory specialist center and he had done um, some work and certainly had a lot of contact with respiratory clinicians. He'd, he'd worked with them in the past. So he wasn't unfamiliar completely with the concept of respiratory support and therapies. Um, so, and I think the other interesting thing is that, is that anaesthetists, um, a lot of, and intensivists, a lot of the, the basic principles that are required to work within aerosol science and this domain, um, there's a lot of overlap because the, the core fundamentals of, of this kind of research are about respiratory physiology, um, some of the, the basic flows of, of gases, um, shear forces, humidity, um, the anatomy of the, the airway and the lungs, and then of course the procedures and the, the kind of clinical exposure. So although there were aspects of it that were completely novel to me, the, the concept of aerosols and, and particles, um, there was a lot of it that was actually familiar to us and the other clinicians involved. Um, and likewise with the aerosol scientists, they weren't too unfamiliar with, with some of the, um, the clinical aspects. So actually it wasn't that hard to find a middle ground. And I think we all agreed the one thing that we probably all shared, which, which is becoming increasingly apparent is, um, is how the fundamental infection control guidance, which sort of articulated the aerosols, um, aerosols are only a, um, a risk during procedures was something that I think we all, we were all concerned that that may not have been true. Um, and so we had a sort of united um, concern from, from different backgrounds. So we had clinical concern and then we had the basic science concern that it was, it was a flawed thing and we wanted to investigate it essentially. Laura, can I, can I come in and just make a, a comment? I think um, there have been several papers um, which have looked in, in broadly similar areas. There's a paper by Gakely, which was published in, which looked at high flow nasal oxygen and um, CPAP, uh, the same as this paper did, and a paper from the aerator group. Um, and in the intubation and extubation um, domain, there's been a, there was a paper by um, Dylan at, um, et al. from Melbourne. And, and all these papers um, have involved um, aerosol scientists and clinicians. And I think bringing those two groups together is really important because the knowledge that we as anaesthetists and intensivists have about um, small particles is really very limited. And it is really important to get that detail right. Um, and they're not clinicians. So I think the, the, the combination of the two is really important for good science and not, those papers have not necessarily come up with identical answers. So for instance, the Dillon um, group in, in Melbourne would have different groups from the aerator group in Bristol, different results. But um, I think it gives credibility 
um, to have these, as you say, to, to not have uh, people working in silos that, 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 are, that are not um, fully operational in terms of understanding the science and the medicine. Uh, so I think it is what makes this paper, along with others, um, more valid, um, uh, more thorough, um, and more worthwhile. That's an excellent, excellent point, Tim. And I realize, you know, be, even before we kick off a, a deeper discussion, and Tony, I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing you in. Nick, can you, just for the audience who has not read this paper, give us a very brief um, thumbnail sketch of um, just in a, in a PICO type format, um, what the paper looked at and, and what you found. So we created a, um, a chamber which had very, very clean air in it and put 10 healthy subjects into the chamber with a large sampling cone in front of their head, essentially, which was connected to a laser particle counter that sampled at 100 liters per minute. And then we got them to perform a range of respiratory activities, some of which were chosen to replicate disease. So cough, exercise, a forced expiratory volume, breaths, for example, talking and shouting were included. And then we repeated those with surgical masks, and then we repeated many of those with high flow nasal oxygen at um, 60 liters per minute. And we repeated exercise with non-invasive positive pressure at 20 over 10. And then we looked at just non-invasive pressure and high flow nasal oxygen at increasing pressures to see what the effect of pressure and flow would have on aerosol emission. And the laser particle counter was, was counting um, total aerosol and droplet emissions essentially from, from these subjects. And what we found was that um, respiratory activity and exertion is the sort of primary determinant of um, aerosol and droplet emissions, not the procedures with their increasing pressures and flows. For example, coughing produced 350 times um, the amount of aerosols in six coughs in one minute compared to one minute of quiet breathing. Um, whereas the maximum um, aerosol emissions during non-invasive ventilation at the highest pressure was about seven, seven, seven times. Um, and talking was 35. So essentially talking produced a greater number of aerosols than um, even the maximal pressures and flows. And, and what we found was when we did exercise and some of the other um, activities while getting the therapies they actually reduced the aerosol emissions which is something that we we anticipated could happen so for example if someone was exercising they produced 50 times the amount of aerosols to kind of put that into terms that's tens of thousands of aerosols a minute essentially um and that would be reduced um by about sort of 40 percent if if they use non-invasive ventilation at the same time um, so those were our sort of primary findings, really. So in the, the 10 volunteers that you had who were relatively young, the yeah. use of either high flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation were associated with a decrease in aerosols, um, but quiet breathing, you had a slight increase in aerosols when these were applied. Is that yeah. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. So I think um, there's a couple of things to sort of 
contextualize there. So when people quiet breathe, they produce a very small amount of aerosols. So um, the average number was about 140 per minute um, for somebody sitting there quiet breathing. Talking, just to give reference, was about 5,000 per minute. So you can already see that there's a, just a huge difference once you start to, to add exertion into it. Um, so when we're comparing things with, with quiet breathing, it, it's, it starts to get a little bit tricky. So a sort of sevenfold increase on very little isn't, isn't that much. Whereas the, the reduction with exercise, because exercise produces such a, a great amount, the reduction is, is much more con considerable. Okay. So it actually has the potential to greatly reduce um, emissions during a much more aerosol generating period. So somebody breathing deeply and hard produces many, many, many more aerosols than somebody who's sitting there breathing quietly. Okay, um, but, great. Yeah. 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 I, if I so just, Tony, can I uh, bring you in? Can I, can I add a thought yeah. to what Nick just said? Because I think it is important to emphasize that it's the relative comparisons that are important in determining the risk associated with aerosol generation. An absolute value of aerosol is meaningless without the context of its relative relationships to normal respiratory activity, actually. And, and that's very helpful and a very important uh, aspect of the study that Nick's done and is a feature of a number of the other studies that have appeared in the past year that allows us to place these observations in something of a meaningful context and make an interpretation about risk. Tony, can I also ask you, um, you know, Nick, I, I have to give you tremendous credit. You and your research group went into enough detail about your experimental setup that it could be reproduced. It, it made logical sense. You explained why you did different things. And I love the PBC, you know, covering of, of volunteers. Um, Tony, what's your thoughts on the on the setup of this? Is this a something a setup that we should start to consider to do uh, more studies in? How would you have changed it? What what's your thoughts on that? So that this sort of setup is the sort of setup you need to do a lab based study of aerosol because in the environment all around us. There are many thousands of particles floating in the air per cubic centimeter that are way in excess of the level of aerosol that you generate from the respiratory tract, even when coughing. And so uh, you need to get the levels down. And the approach that Nick took was an evolution of an approach that others had taken in the past. It was nice uh, implementation of that and largely reflects, I think, Ewan's expertise in this territory. Um, ironically, We've gone to some trouble in most hospitals to create exactly such an environment in our laminar flow theatres. And, and this was not something that the aerosol scientists across the world were really aware of. And so they were amazed when they came into laminar flow theatres and saw such low uh, particle counts in what is a regular healthcare setting. So in a sense, we don't need to assemble Nick's apparatus within a hospital setting if the procedure that we're interested in or the event we're interested in can be organized to happen in a laminar flow theater or a, 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 what I should say just for clarity that's a HEPA filtered 
uh, ventilation system. It's not the laminar flow that's really the critical matter. It's that the, the HEPA filtering reduces the particle count down. Okay, the HEPA filtering of the entire room. Yeah, essentially the airflow, the airflow in the constrained central uh, zone under the canopy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you think, and I'm asking both, uh, actually I'm asking all three of you, um, do you think that it behooves the clinicians involved in patient care to understand what they're dealing with in terms of their air circulation in the operating room, in the intensive care rooms, um, in order to advocate for these? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's something we've not had to pay a lot of attention to, and we've rather, I think, for the most part, allowed others to uh, do that on our behalf. And now we're paying much more attention to how the ventilation is happening in other areas where procedures are being performed, where patients are being cared for. And uh, the general direction of travel in hospitals is to bend to seal the windows and to stop uh, the movement of air in many clinical areas. And of course, that's not at all what you want to do if you want to disperse an aerosol effectively. Tim? Yeah, I, I think um, I, might, I might answer a different question, one that you haven't answered. I think one of the, one of the key differences um, uh, between uh, Nick's study um, and uh, the studies that have preceded it is that by doing it in a chamber, so, so uh, Tony's work, George uh, Brown's work has been done in Bristol, um, they've gone into an orthopaedic theatre or a neurosurgery theatre and made that theatre extremely clean um, and then turned off the ventilation so there's not too much flow within the theatre and then sampled aerosols close to the patient. Um, what uh, Nick has done, uh, and Ewan and colleagues, is to create a, a small chamber to do, to do that in, but also to sample in a cone, a larger cone, which is really with, with the patient's head inside that, um, and to sample at very high flows. And so rather than sampling from the, from the plume, so a fraction of the plume or a certain amount of a directional plume that is coming from the respiratory tract, the aim has been to actually capture all the aerosols, so all the aerosols and, and droplets that are, that are exhaled. And so um, that makes the, um, and you, the part of the study is also to use um, e-cigarette smoke to visualize the flow within that chamber and see that perhaps in coughing and, and some other maneuvers, some of that, some of that exhaled um, plumes lost. But um, that, that then enables a, a a different way of looking at the exhaled particles and rather than uh, simply sampling a portion of them, really trying to take all of them and therefore the numbers come out somewhat differently and, uh, and it certainly adds significantly to the previous work that's been done. Excellent, excellent point. It also adds our ability to add a volume to that, uh, particles per, per liter, for example. Yeah, that, that is one of the, the issues with all this work. I, I've been to what Tony says. I got a, a similar call last night. We had um, aerosol biologists on the call, and, and still we, we don't really know. Um, we know about proximity and duration of contact being important for transmission, but we don't know what 
whether it's a certain volume or a certain uh, number or a certain mass of, of um, uh, viral containing particles or size uh, that lead to infection. So the sort of aliquot that leads to an infection, whether that's the same for each, as it were, recipient, um, is, is not known. Um, so there is a lot of uncertainty um, and all these studies are, are looking at only one aspect because to date um, they've looked at aerosol generation focusing on these um, procedures which are termed aerosol generating procedures and try to see if indeed they are aerosol generating which is an important step in understanding if they are high risk and potentially um, uh, liable to cause transmission. Um, but they've not looked at um, uh, infected patients uh, and they've not uh, uh, sampled virus from infected patients. Tony might want to come in on that, I think. Yeah, just, just to say that, that the volume measure is interesting. If you think of a viral particle as being about 0.1 of a micron, then obviously below a certain size of particle, although they might be very uh, numerous, they're, they're not going to have virus particles in them. But in the range that Nick's study has sampled, they're all potentially capable of carrying a virus particle. But of course, there's a cube law relationship between the size of that particle and the volume and the, therefore the number of uh, particles potentially that could be carried. And that volume relationship is likely meaningful. But as Tim just said, the minimal infective dose of COVID required to transmit the infection uh, is not known. And actually, some of the human exposure studies that are underway currently uh, in uh, Imperial are designed exactly to determine uh, the answer to that question, intentionally infecting healthy volunteer subjects with COVID. And that will be very useful uh, for us again in the risk calibration. It's an excellent point. And, and might I add to that, that, that I think age will play a, a role in that clearly as we set up our prediction models that, you know, perhaps an 80-year-old needs a different aliquot uh, than an otherwise well uh, person in their, in their 20s. Um, we keep on losing Nick, unfortunately, uh, from the call, but I did want to ask um, Nick, and, and perhaps I can ask uh, you, Tony, um, as well, Tim, if you want to chime in. What do you think the result is uh, in terms of these conclusions of having volunteers, of which there was 10 volunteers who were quite young, actually, uh, in their mid-20s to, mid to early 30s? Um, as, a, as a one standard deviation above and below the, I think the mean age was 28, 29. Um, do you think that, that this particle generation in terms of the modeling applies to our 75-year-old uh, uh, patient who comes in? Um, and if so, how does it change? So good, good question. Um, there's been a study um, from a group who were looking to measure the di uh, diagnostic potential of respiratory particles. So it's not just um, infection-related people that are interested in, in aerosols and respiratory particles. People are also interested from a diagnostic point of view. 
and there's a group who've measured 120 um, individuals of, of different sexes, different ages, including some with respiratory diseases. And they found um, a subtle uh, variation with age and with sex, whereby older people had a slight increase in aerosol emissions, and I think males were associated with slightly more. But um, what they found was um, that there were these super emitters that are just not really explained, and and they they really produce a considerable amount of aerosol emissions, and and that's something that's consistent in all of these studies. But that the sort the sort of reflection in 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 things like age. Um, wasn't wasn't a big one but people have looked at um a little bit of respiratory disease so um somebody measured people with cough um during a viral illness um before and after when they recovered and they found that the people with acute uh, infection were much greater aerosol emitters so we are definitely limited by um having young healthy people, but the science that does exist, um, both what's been shown and what you would anticipate is that, that older, sicker, sicker people would, would actually produce more aerosols. They'd have more mucus. Um, they'd have, um, their closing capacity would, would be altered and they'd be more inclined to make aerosols if anything, but certainly the, the study needs to be done. Um, yeah. As yeah, I have found it striking looking at the studies that a lot of them include young and healthy volunteers. And yet that's not the COVID population that we're dealing with, at least in, in Canada um, and elsewhere. Um, and it's fascinating to me that I wonder if there's a sense of almost, you know, whoever is around and available in a clinical setting, as opposed to really targeting a patient population that actually has the, the disease. I wonder if there's a certain... Um, well, ageism involved in uh, in that, not seeking out those those people that could volunteer at a. At a well, I think I think that might be. I think that's a fair point. Um, it it might be. So a lot of the focus on the um, on the paper and related papers has been around the uh, implications for healthcare workers and uh, PPE and and behaviours or ventilation. Um, within hospitals, but actually the implications are probably um, outside hospitals as well. Um, so uh, young people, you know, are more likely to transmit than than others. So I think I, I don't think we should dismiss the young volunteers. The, the other the other point that I would would make is that um, there are some the videos. So um, ABC in Australia covered the the, the paper um, yesterday. And there's some videos from that on the on the on Twitter. We'll probably put some more in, in the next few days. But when you look at the videos, um, which which show two individuals ex exhaling um, e-cigarette smoke, um, there's a marked difference between the two the amount of of, of exhaled breath um, that they produce. Very marked difference. And if you look down at the, at the results of the study, also there's a massive inter-individual variation. Mm -hmm. And this was exactly the same that Gakely reported um, in, in his article, which is published in the American Journal of Respiratory uh, Critical Care Medicine. Um, and he also found marked inter-individual inter variation. And that variation between individuals far exceeded 
variation in aerosols that, that was generated by the same person who had um, a different oxygen modalities attached to them, which is what their study was about. Excellent, excellent point, Tim. Tony, did you want to say anything about that? Sure. So um, I think we can make inferences based on healthy volunteer studies, but there are also limits to what we can do. And actually, it's quite difficult to extrapolate with confidence from a healthy volunteer study done in a lab setting to a patient study based in a, a healthcare setting. There, there are clearly some limits and we need to be mindful of that. But actually, we do have to hang on to the, the uh, principle that this is hard-won information that's very useful and novel. And we're seeing, in essence, the development of a new field of uh, uh, clinical aerobiology, if you want to call it, that where we can actually quantify things that have previously been ghosts and specters to us that have caused a lot of fear. And that's very valuable. And, and of course, the, the individuals in the study are acting as their own controls. So the, coming back to Tony's point about uh, the sort of relative uh, production of aerosol from, in, from different respiratory activities or different um, oxygen therapies, AGPs in this, in this case, having the individual either start with a cough, um, uh, we used to do the aerator studies, or in, this, or in this case, have a whole series of different performances then they are their own control. And so you can create this hierarchy of, um, uh, of aerosol generation. Yeah, using themselves as their own control, I think is an excellent point. Um, Nick, I, I wanted to ask you, and, and I wanted to give you kudos for uh, putting everybody on an exercise bike. Like that was, uh, you know, that, you know that, that was a really, really smart idea and to put them into different uh, modalities. Uh, the mask you used was a, a level three, um, surgical mask uh, that was, you know, the same across everybody. Um, and I wanted to to ask you, and and again, I'll open it up to the to everybody else. Um, do you think that we've now, with yet this additional study and other studies coming in that both Tony and, and Tim have mentioned, do you think that we're at the the turning point now where we need to start changing the guidelines to not include? Uh, non-invasive and, and high-flow oxygen as those things that generate more aerosols and should not be used? Do you think that we should worldwide change our guidelines to actually encourage their use of anything? That, that's a great question and clearly um, sort of million-dollar one. I, I would reflect on it differently and say that currently we emphasize procedures as the one and only thing that will give you access to higher grades uh, PPE or aerosol protection or emphasis or whatever you want to call it. That is the one and only sort of decision-making um, factor in, in you know, what we're using at the moment. And I, I would say that these studies suggest that um, physiology and clinical context and patient factors are crucial. So procedures could be high risk because if you have someone who's early in the course of COVID who's dyspneic and coughing and they need respiratory support and you need to spend a lot of time in close proximity to them, putting on non-invasive ventilation. You know, our study suggests that that person around that period of time will be putting out a lot of aerosols. Um, viral emissions could be high. 
and um, and that is a period of high risk. Whereas somebody who's having elective surgery and is breathing normally um, and requires um, you know gentle bag valve mask ventilation or the use of of high flow nasal oxygen, that is that is a very different scenario. Um, so I think procedures can indicate risk by association if their the association is with respiratory disease, which is probably where the original link to these procedures uh, comes from. The historic epidemiological link was, was to critically unwell patients um, who were needing these supports. Um, so I think, I think there does need to be a shift moving forward in, in how we view it, um, putting, uh, bringing in many other factors into the risk decision, essentially. Right. So it's not just the relative decrease or increase. It's actually total number as well. If you are sick, as, as Tony said previously, if you are sick, you're producing just logarithmically much more to start with. Well, yeah. So just to quickly say, um, so exercise, for example, produces 50 times more than quiet breathing. But if you reduce um, with good non-invasive ventilation, you slow someone's respiratory rate, provide some positive pressure ventilation. These mechanisms could reduce aerosol emissions. You may only do it by a third, um, but that's still somebody producing, say, 30-fold more than that somebody who's quiet breathing. So although you're reducing um, aerosol emissions, they could still be much higher than somebody who's just at rest. Um, and that's something that people should be aware of. Tim. Uh, Laura, I think Nick's absolutely right. So there has been this focus on the procedure um, and there is increasing evidence, not just from this paper, but from a series of papers, that, that the procedures are not generating additional aerosols. Um, they're not, um, uh, well, if they are, in the case of high flow, if it's generating additional um, um, uh, particles, those are probably from the machine rather than the patient, so they're, they're not respiratory particles. Um, so then you have to focus on the patient and on their, their type of breathing, their respiratory pattern. So a patient who might have COVID or does have COVID, who's breathing heavily and coughing, is at high risk, whether you're coming to them to put on high flow nasal oxygen, or whether you're coming to intubate them, or whether you're coming to put a urinary catheter in or whatever. And you go back to, um, there's a meta-analysis by Tran, uh, which is famously quoted, and has, uh, its citation numbers have increased uh, exponentially in the last year. And that looked at um, uh, procedures uh, during SARS in association with uh, healthcare worker transmission of illness. And probably, rather than the procedures, it was that proximity to the to a critically ill patient and the duration of time, perhaps rather than those procedures. So it may be time to start moving away. But the point Nick makes is really excellent: is that is that if you put so the act of putting um, high flow or, or or CPAP onto a patient probably doesn't increase aerosols and may in fact decrease them. And there's good physiological reasons to understand that, um, but you only put those on patients who have got severe, in this context, who have got severe COVID, who have got deep breathing and coughing and forced expiratory manoeuvres, et cetera. So they are already those high-risk patients. 
So the answer is not someone who's on high flow, no risk at all, they're low risk. That isn't the answer. If someone has a CPAP machine because they've got sleep, um, sleep apnea and they come in for a surgical operation then, and they're in a, on, a, on a safe pathway, uh, then that isn't a risk. But in a, in, a, in a patient with respiratory illness, they'll still be generating aerosols. Yeah, in a, in a huge number more than a quiet breather and not in respiratory distress. Yeah. Um, Tony, anything to add to that? Yeah, well, I, I think we're in a state of evolution as we've gone through this pandemic and we started it in a relatively blinded situation where we couldn't see this fearful virus very effectively. We couldn't identify the patients very clearly because we didn't have good tests. We couldn't uh, uh, organize our healthcare very satisfactorily in order to stream them into zones where we could you know, manage the risk effectively. We, of course, didn't have vaccination, which now many of us will have been vaccinated as healthcare workers. And um, that evolution uh, in, uh, as well as the aerosol uh, uh, side of things, is changing perspectives quite quickly, I think. And we're still, we still have this uh, uh, AGP paradigm, which perhaps served us well initially, but is now needing to be reevaluated as to what extent it continues to serve us well. And, and I, I don't think it's too controversial to say that we all question aspects of it. And there's an obvious uh, and jarring contrast between the precautions that are taken in some areas of the hospital associated with these procedures and other areas of the hospital where such precautions are not used, but clearly aerosol is likely to be generated. And, and we see those in the studies, don't we? Um, you know, when you compare the intubate COVID um, study with studies looking at a more macro view of healthcare workers and who's getting ill, it's actually not the person dressed up in full PPE intubating a paralyzed patient. Um, it's it's the other healthcare workers that day in and day out are constantly exposed. And even the cleaners and the phlebotomists, you don't have to be a necessarily quote unquote frontline worker, but you are definitely a patient facing worker. Um, so, you know, I, I think you're, that, that's profound what you say. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting looking at the TRAN systematic review. Many of the original papers in TRAN systematic review were out of Toronto. Um, and now that I'm working in Ontario, you know, I've, I've delved a little bit deeper into the original papers on TRAN systematic review. And, and who was at highest risk was actually the airway assistant. Um, the person helping the practitioner was at between four and 20 times as likely to acquire SARS as the clinician intubating themselves. Um, and so I just want to actually maybe tie that into this whole idea of what the e-cigarette showed, just a little bit of uh, you know, scratching the surface of, of that type of exposure where the, you know, you're having things come out of mask, the, I called it the side puff, um, and whether we're actually putting our airway assistants or other assistants that are at the side of the bed, close to the patient, 
versus the head of the bed when we're doing air, uh, airway procedures or at the end of the bed, even when we're doing rounds or, or even uh, coordinating a, a code um, and uh, how you would necessarily change or modify that or whether you believe that the, the, the side people during those uh, types of activities uh, should be better protected. I, I could yeah. just say one thing quickly on that. Um, I've looked at those papers um, in detail um, a while ago as well. And my interpretation of it was um, exactly like you said, that it wasn't the clinicians, it wasn't the primary airway op operator who was um, most at risk. But my reading of the study in question was actually they, they, they were nurses, um, but they, they would have been taking the role presumably of, of airway assistant. But my, my feeling on that, that it, it may have been the time in the room, um, because obviously we're sort of speculating and we're, we're going back like sort of Sherlock Holmes looking at these, this event that happened uh, historically. But my feeling is you might have had a room with uh, a deteriorating patient in it that required um, lots of close care and set up with all the rest of it. And, and actually the, the nurses would have been the ones who spend the most proximity in the room and exposure is is kind of a risk over time phenomenon so the more time those people are inhaling within the room or you know regardless whether it's droplet fomite or, or aerosol there's just more time exposed um rather ra like what you say is is valid that our our studies are did show that surgical masks do deflect uh, things around the side but I feel that it was probably the prolonged period of time in those rooms that may have exposed those people in question. Right, right. It's interesting, two of the studies included um, compared nurses that had been for the intubation and nurses that just took care of these patients pre and post and, and had never been uh, in the room for the intubation because I guess you had to have like special an education for assisting in intubation. And even that showed a difference. Um, and, and so there is a certain, I think, exposure that we do for 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 people. Um, but you know, as as Tony says, this this is a new area in evolution, and we can no longer rely on SARS data, where you know what was included also included patients being intubated with no paralysis, um, you know, uh, and other things. I, I don't think that TRAN necessarily applies, but perhaps it was a precautionary principle to use our findings with that right at the beginning, but now it's developing. Um, Tim. So Laura, can I pick up on um, something you were saying earlier about um, you know, who gets infected in a hospital? Um, and there's very clear epidemiological evidence, um, certainly from the UK, um, where I think a lot of good studies have been done, looking at um, both seroconversion of, of individuals, so infection of of uh, staff working in hospitals, but also hospitalization and some data on, on deaths of healthcare workers as well. So we've got kind of the whole picture and whichever of those measures you look at, um, it's very clear that probably the safe place to be um, in terms of not getting COVID is intensive care, probably followed by theatres. And, and the front door um, and the respiratory wards and the geriatric wards are the unsafe places. And in terms of personnel, it tends to be people at the 
bottom of the hierarchy. So um, more junior staff are more likely to get infected than more senior staff. It's very clear if, if you're a frontline healthcare worker, your increased risk of any of those things is two, three, fourfold higher than the community, uh, than, than individuals in the same community. Um, if you're not a frontline health worker, but you are a health worker, your risk is in fact lower than within the community. So it's very much a frontline front thing. Um, and um, it also, as you say, it affects domestics and cleaners, uh, affects porters um, and transport staff as well. So um, staff involved in transport, so that's paramedics, um, drivers, etc. Those are perhaps the highest risk group in the UK for death, healthcare worker associated death from COVID. So we've got this, this sort of um, uh, contrast between those people working in intensive care who are doing, who are thought to be doing the, the, the closest um, aerosol-based or, or airway-based procedures uh, originally thought to be associated with a highest risk of aerosols, um, but who are the safest? Um, and they're wearing the highest uh, levels of PPE, whatever you want to call those. I know about 30 different names for them. Whatever you want to call them, they're wearing the highest. And then on the wards, we've got a contrast to what people are wearing. And it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that it's all about what people are wearing. Um, I think there are about seven different factors as to why on intensive care, um, there may be reasons why um, people are at lower risk. And I'll try to remember a few of them. So firstly, I think, so in, in contrast to SARS and MERS, um, where the peak um, illness of the patients, where the patient's most severely ill, the viral, the, uh, the viral secretion is its maximum. In the case of um, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID, we know that the, the period of maximum transmission is probably from two days before symptoms starts. In most cases, to five days, after that and rarely beyond nine days. Now, typically patients present to ITU at day 10 to 12, and it's quite possible, it's not certain, but it's quite possible that those patients are not infectious when they reach us. The second thing is that we, um, we use, uh, well, we work in environments which um, are used to dealing with infection control, and I suspect that the staff working in intensive care and theatres are, are better at, at intensive care sorry, at, at infection control measures um, than some staff on the wards because they're more used to it, they're trained in it. I suppose to protect patients from infection and to uh, protect uh, transmission between patients. It's certain that intensive cares and operating theatres, even old ones, are better ventilated than, than most wards. Um, so that's a further and probably really important factor. Um, then there's the PPE is the fact that probably people are trained to use the PPE better on ITU, um, and therefore that whole behavioural aspect um, is, is, is a factor. And, and also there's the fact that these procedures are done perhaps once or twice in a shift, um, whereas the staff on the wards are constantly exposed to the coughing patients, or the patients who have got exertional respiratory patterns. And so the, the if you sort of... the the time consequence, if we're thinking about uh, risk of infection as proximity and time and infectiousness and lack of ventilation, those four features, then the time, uh, the, the, the sort of aliquots of, of potential infection increases. So it's not all about the PPE. And I think it becomes uh, quite 
difficult to unpick which of those six or seven factors it is. Um, and I just scratch my head in terms of wondering them. So, you know, we could move on to a question, do, you, do pe should people be changing PPE? That's a complicated question. Should people, um, yeah, I'll leave that to, to you as, as, as chairwoman. Um, excellent points, Tim. And then an additional thing to that is now with the immunization, as Tony mentioned, you know, what are we going to be looking at uh, going forward? Who gets it? My thought is that we're probably looking at the same people, the people that don't have a glass door between them and the patient, but a, but a curtain in a, in a shared room, um, possibly, uh, before they start to even feel sick. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to dovetail on that and ask Nick a question, which is, Nick, in your final sentence of your paper, um, you do say uh, that uh, you uh, feel that uh, you and your authors, um, uh, you um, need to uh, to actually change measures to account for aerosols doing routine health care, which is, I think, what the emphasis of this discussion has been. It's not been necessarily, as Tim says, in the ICU during airway, supposed, you know, airway generating or aerosol generating medical procedures, but in everyday care with the coughing and et cetera, et cetera, in patients. So, but you do say that we need to actually change our measures to account for it. Um, so what sort of measures were you thinking of that we should be changing to? Um, and then the other thing is, as clinicians uh, and healthcare, uh, healthcare workers are looking at this podcast or listening to it, um, what can they do tomorrow um, uh, based on the study and the other studies, the excellent studies that have now been generated um, to start to change this, this paradigm? What can they advocate for? How should we change the system? I, th I think a good place to start would be recognizing and accepting that, um, you know, COVID is spread by respiratory particles. And as our study shows, there's a log distribution of those particles produced where there's, um, you know, the majority of them are very small, um, whatever exactly you want to define them as. We can call them aerosols, but they're very small and that they are produced during respiratory activities such as talking, shouting, deep breathing, coughing, things like that. So I think just recognizing that is, is a good place to start. Um, of course, the use of masks are, are good in blocking the exhalation. So our study shows that masks appear to work as sort of pressure, um, you know, as barriers essentially to the airflow and they'll slow the uh, high velocity plume as it exits, which contains its highest concentration of aerosols or particles, stops them going into your breathing zone. Um, and the idea with them is that it blunts that and then you have a thermal plume, so your natural body warmth and it takes it up into the into the room and um, and hopefully, you know, with time and ventilation, um, those particles will disappear or at least your, your exposure will be reduced. So, so wearing masks is important. Um, and then ventilation is, is very important within rooms, the, ra the rate of air change. Um, and then of course we get on to enhanced PPE. There are innovative and exciting um, methods that people are describing such as UV decontamination, um, air filters, improving PPE. So there, there is room. I think a, a good place to start is accepting um, the importance of small particles somewhere on the spectrum um, in transmission and then 
interesting, interesting and innovative, as well as simple solutions can come forward to protect um, healthcare workers, but also patients, because because um, nosocomial infection of patients has been an enormous burden around the world. Um, so that's also important too. Thank you. Um, Tony, uh, you mentioned being able to actually open a window in a hospital, which I think is a very uh, basic way to, to start. What, what are your other thoughts about what we should be doing now? Uh, so I, I think Nick has is, is, uh, made a, a good case for what we should be thinking about, but I'd just like to play the devil's advocate slightly and to say that although uh, we are all signed up to the mantra that coughs and sneezes spread diseases and respiratory pathogens spread in that way. That doesn't actually tell us uh, whether it's being spread by the airborne route or by droplets which are being deposited by uh, fomites. And actually, it is very difficult to distinguish between those possibilities. And we're still not able to realistically apportion how much of the spread of COVID is due to each of those different modes. And therefore, it's very difficult to definitively make statements about what the precautions should be, especially regard, regarding airborne spread. And, and um, one of the things that digging into this territory uh, has told me is, is that much of what I thought I knew is based on relatively uncertain factual basis. And, and we do have to be careful about over-extrapolating uh, uh, airborne risks uh, in comparison to other risks. I think, I think uh, that's not totally unreasonable. And, yeah. and so although many of the things that uh, we've talked about make good sense and, and uh, would be a good standard of clinical care and, and a good standard of uh, protection for healthcare workers, uh, it's difficult to make definitive hard statements in this territory. I, I, I would, was, sorry, go ahead, Nick, please. Uh, I, I, I agree. Um, but I think the challenging thing is, I, I do agree, I wouldn't tell anyone not to wash their hands or wipe down surfaces or all the rest of that until we have definitive proof. But um, I think that the amount of evidence that supports um, the classic droplet paradigm, whereby large particles fall within one to two meters of someone or of, of fomite transmission being a predominant route, that, that's never really been shown. Um, and, and it hasn't, um, it hasn't been shown in, in this pandemic either, but there has been as much as Tony's absolutely right. It's difficult to prove there has been building epidemiological evidence and biological, uh, evidence such as live, um, SARS-CoV-2 sampled from air, um, from air samples. So, and, um, and epidemiological evidence that could only really have been explained, um, so I think there's a shift during the course of the pandemic where the onus is starting to, to shed onto the people who defend the, the droplet, uh, the classic droplet argument where, where people are saying, well, where's the evidence for your, um, your classic thinking? Um, because we, the aerosol um, or the smaller droplet group, there is an accumulating amount of evidence across multiple different disciplines. 
I think one of the issues that we deal with when looking at airborne is the fact that it's just simply harder to study um, than, than a droplet uh, uh, study. It's easy to wipe uh, surfaces and, and see whether there's uh, virus there, but to actually do a, a really high quality airborne study um, is quite difficult. And I know, you know, you study, which I'm sure uh, all of you have read from 2004 in the New England Journal, looking at the airborne spread of SARS through the plumbing system in a Hong Kong uh, community of, of six buildings uh, was elegant and, and showed that even the way that the wind went made a difference and infected more people across uh, the yard than actually on the sides of the building from the original person who had SARS. So I, I don't think that, you know, the, again, going back to the, the uh, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but I do wonder early, and, and this is a conversation for another day, whether it was more convenient to talk about droplets because we needed less PPE. If we said that this was also airborne, we would actually have to get our N95s and other things out that we had a very limited supply of. Thankfully, that's gotten better in many countries, not all countries. Um, but I think it's actually a false dichotomy to say droplets versus uh, airborne as, as it is a spectrum of, of droplets. And if we accept that it's spread always, I, I think the studies that you're doing, Nick, the studies that you're doing, Tony, and, and, and the just macro work that you're doing, Tim, are, are all essential. Laura, can I make a comment? I think I think you've, you've just touched on it there. I think the the this is called the great aerosol debate. I might change the way um, great is spelt because it is a kind of grating debate in some way. <laughs> in as much as the, the as with a lot of things on social media, but also in discussions, there is there is a polarization of the of the views. You you seem to have to either be in the camp that there are aerosols everywhere and that's the primary mode of, of transmission or you're in the camp uh, you're, you're in the camp that says it's predominantly droplets and aerosols are only relevant for these AGPs many of which we know are not really generating much aerosols now and I think that's an unhelpful dichotomy um, in much the same way as the dichotomy of aerosols and droplets is unhelpful um, uh, and misleading so as Tony said there is self-evidently droplet spread. If someone coughs in your face, you're more likely to get infected. Um, but also, there are self-evidently um, circumstances where aerosols can, can infect. And, and I think this and other studies, the, the studies that have been done in Bristol and in Sydney and elsewhere, add um, to our knowledge in an important way. And of course, there are lots of other different types of studies. I would... Um, uh, I think it's really important these studies carry on. So one of the comments um, was, uh, that I've read about was that um, that after the SARS epidemic, this sort of work should have been done um, much more, and uh, that it was important it should carry on. And there's really been perhaps a bit of a gap in terms of what's been done. And it's really important uh, that um, including in those countries where vaccination rates are high, and the risk of infection is low, um, that there remains a commitment to this sort of um, good um, clinical science uh, to try and understand 
the, the, the relative contributions of aerosol and, and droplets of infection. And I, and I do hope that those um, people who are in charge of writing guidelines, which is an invidious position to be in, um, I do hope that they can become, um, um, or, or some of them are, but I hope all of them can become more agile and visible and communicate better in terms of um, why the guidelines sit as they do and why new evidence doesn't change them. Um, I think writing guidelines is extraordinarily difficult uh, and there are lots of pressures, some of which we don't understand, you know, those that don't write guidelines don't understand. Um, but I think sometimes um, the guideline writers are hidden behind a sort of cloak of invisibility um, and perhaps they could step out from behind that. Tony, last thoughts. I was just going to add a couple of uh, thoughts, just to say that there is a dynamic discussion happening, that uh, there is an awareness of studies like Nick's and some of the studies that have been published before. Uh, there's an appreciation that actually that needs to be knitted somehow into the epidemiology evidence, which is bringing another different type of science to bear on this problem. And because of the two clauses of the definition of an aerosol generating procedure, one half of which says needs aerosol, the other half of which says needs an increased risk of transmission, then those, those two uh, uh, scientific groupings need to work out how to uh, rub along nicely together. And, and uh, I think that is a work in progress, uh, but, but certainly uh, work like uh, the paper published by Nick and Tim is going to very much inform that discussion. Wonderful. Nick, I'm going to leave you to the last word. Oh, that's a lot of, a lot of pressure. It's been... Um, fantastic discussion and I agree with um, the concept of polarizing and it's a very emotive topic it it really um, it really appeals to a lot of people um, the protection of themselves and their patients and I think for that reason it was what attracted to me and there's a lot of really interesting science to be done and I think we're a, a long way off um, from truly understanding uh, aerosol and droplet transmission and it's going to be an exciting few years ahead in this field of research. Excellent, excellent. A, a wonderful, wonderful way to end. I, I'd like to thank the panelists, um, Tony, Tim and, and Nick for, um, for generously uh, giving your time and, and thoughts today. Um, you know, yet another um, excellent paper to add to our understanding of this. Um, I can tell you the Ontario government um, actually after SARS had an incredible amount of funding for research and two years after that it was all dismantled, resulting in difficulty convincing people that it was actually worth studying. Uh, and then as, um, as the COVID pandemic hit, uh, we were all relying on a systematic review uh, from 2012 about things that happened in 2003. Uh, and I, it is my deep hope that we learn from that and that we don't make that same mistake again uh, with such essential uh, research as, as what you are all generating. Um, so thank, thank you so much for this contribution, Nick. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks, Laura. It's really excellent. Thanks, Laura. Thank you.
Thanks, everybody. Good night, everyone. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>